Well, it's obvious we have folks away, and it's also um, the first Lord's Day of a new month. And even though I'm not exactly certain we said September was the time we would do open form, I'm up for it this morning. Um, we could go into Second Corinthians, but I would like to bring the other folks with us as we continue our journey to the conclusion of that second letter. Um, I mentioned there was a question that Mike Phillips raised. If he comes in this building within the next uh, four minutes, I will go down the road of answering that question. Kind of a complex question. It's a question about um, God seeking out the life of Moses and uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 4. And uh, of course, Zipporah, his wife, uh, circumcising the children and calling him a, a husband of blood to her. And what is all that about? It's a very strange passage found in uh, the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. And it's a compelling one. And it's one that I have a provisional answer for, though maybe not a final answer for. But uh, I really want Mike to be here if we do that. The other thing I'd say to you is that my summer has been a funny summer. My normal pattern is not only to spend my week looking to prepare the messages for the Lord's Day, but my normal pattern is to do a wide variety of reading of, of lots of things, just in general reading and just you know, working my way through uh, different uh, issues, considerations, concerns, um, just for my own edification. Nothing that I plan necessarily to teach upon, just for my own edification. Uh, but this summer, my reading has been really focused. Uh, the month of July, it was Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. And um, I had reasons for doing that, uh, teaching uh, some of the men who asked me to do some lectures on Isaiah, and I did, did those lectures, but I got absorbed with Isaiah, and, uh, and uh, unfortunately that came to an end, but um, I was really hoping this would be an Isaiah summer, even in terms of um, evening sermons, I would preach on Isaiah, but that uh, got waylaid by the fact that we that thing is, sort of came to an end. I don't know if it's going to get renewed or not, but we'll see. But um, having then come to an end of Isaiah, 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 I got into Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. So everything is in preparation for the series in Jeremiah. And I really want to come at Jeremiah as we renew our studies with a real sense of the fullness of the book, not just looking to uh, chunk it out bit by bit by bit by bit as we go along, really to have something of a, a view of the whole terrain. And 52 chapters, it's a wide terrain, and it's, com- it's complicated. Uh, there are really good biblical scholars who have simply said if you don't get utterly confused at the book of Isaiah, it's sort of like a hodgepodge or a mishmash of stuff just sort of put together. Uh, you're just not reading it. You're not understanding it. It's uh, something that is very confusing. And I've lighted on some things, I think, that uh, show the unity of the book and I hope to present those things. But that's where my summer's been. It's been in the prophets and it's been a good journey through the prophets, but um, to be able just to call to mind something that would be of interest just on my own is just something that's just not there this morning. So I'm looking to you, if we're going to have an open forum, to ask some questions. So um, I'm going to throw the ball into your court and hopefully we'll come up with something. Um, anybody come this morning with something that's been on their mind, something that they've been, oh, oh, goody, goody. We got to Jan right away. Go ahead, Jan. <laughs> well, hopefully next week we're going to have a, a, a microphone, kind of like Oprah, that's going to go around the room. But uh, this is what we have today. I'll never hear from you again. <laughs> um, 
So the verse, we take captive every thought to make it obedient for, to Christ. Mm-hmm. Very often in my Christian life, that's been very much applied to the individual, taking uh, thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And you explained that it was in the context of the arguments of the world and demolishing strongholds of thought and bringing them captive to Christ. So is, is there an application to an individual in taking thoughts captive to Christ where the point is that we don't make ourselves crazy and go overboard with being too um, fastidious about some of those things? Yeah. Oh, again, anything that's true of the Christian life in general is true of the individual Christian. Anything that's true of the church is true of the individual Christian because what the church is, is the church is the assembly of the saints. And so, you know, we have uh, um, things that are pertain to you know, the gospel, ministry, that might have a special particular concern to ministers, to the content of the gospel message that we proclaim, uh, that also does pertain to the church. Uh, we look to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in ministry so that we might minister the truth to the people of God because we all stand in the truth. We all It's the truth that sanctifies. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. And the truth is um, you know, something that's not just propositional. It's something that's very, very practical. It's the way we live in the light of reality. Um, and I think that does pertain to what Paul was going to go on to say about these... Um, he calls them super apostles. I don't know if I answered your question there. Could you say what Jan's question was? Okay, uh, every thought being captive, but captive to the obedience of Christ. Jan said, as I presented it last week, I really don't remember my comments on it, but that it pertained more to um, in the content of the message over and against the false teachers. Uh, and Jan said, well, in her own life, that's been something that's been an exhortation to individual Christians. And so my point is, whatever is true about the gospel message, whatever is true about the Christian life, uh, whatever is true about the church in general, has its application to the individual Christian. So that, um, yeah, every, every believer is to be concerned with truth, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Because just as super apostles have their minds wander in ways that are forbidden, in ways that are not approved of, of Scripture, every Christian has a tendency not to walk in the light of reality. And this is something just in general that's been something being impressed upon my own heart, is the importance of what is real. The importance of living... I mean, we live in a fantasy world with so much access to, um, you know, constant entertainment and movies, uh, reality shows in which we are... Reality shows, like they're real. No, we're looking into the lives of other people. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to have any practical concern with you. But this is what people feed upon. They feed their souls upon fantasy. Reality, that's not reality at all. It's all scripted. It's all, uh, it's all produced for the purposes of ratings and entertainment. And uh, we confuse reality with fantasy. And uh, just as false apostles uh, have their own perspective with regard to the, um, what a true apostle is, and, and they got it all wrong because they didn't get it from the gospel. See, these uh, false teachers were really viewing the world, they were viewing ministry, they were viewing Paul from the vantage point of um, their culture, not the gospel. They didn't get those ideas out of the gospel. Because the gospel speaks of God's 
triumph through weakness and through humility, through the death of the cross. It's the death of Jesus that brings life. And Paul's living a life that's formed to that. It's, it's cruciform, as they say. That, I don't know where that word came from, but it's like the cross. It's like dying that we might live. Uh, he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Uh, he um, had the sentence of death within himself that he might learn not to trust in himself, but in the God who raises the dead. And he carries about in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be manifested in his mortal body. So there is this principle of living the Christian life in conformity to the death of Christ. The death that John calls glory. The death that led to life, that led to resurrection, that led to exaltation, that led to glory. And um, the false apostles had it all wrong. They thought that uh, Paul should be living a life uh, not of weakness, but of strength and power. If he's a real apostle, would, would God allow him to live the way he's living, to experience the things that he's experiencing? And they were mistaking everything. And a lot of that was out of a, just a dislike for Paul. He couldn't do nothing right in their eyes. They would use anything and everything as a means to find fault in him. They found fault in his travel plans. They found fault in his... Um, I'm going to the Second Corinthians again. But, um, yeah, so um, Paul's response was to respond not on their terms, but on the gospel's terms bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so, so that meant when they were glorying in achievements, what they thought were achievements, Paul says, well, I'll do another turn. I'll, I'll talk as a fool and I will boast in my shame. I will boast in my shame. Now he gives that whole list of things that uh, happened to him and none of them are glorious. I mean, shipwrecked three times, uh, beaten with rods, uh, beaten with Roman uh, 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 rods, Jewish rods, uh, the, the, the 39 stripes. <clears throat> um, and he concludes it, interestingly enough, with that picture of being lowered down in the basket. And a lot of it is irony and a lot of it is even Paul's Paul's telling jokes on himself. Look what my life is like. I mean, this is not a glorious thing. I mean, the glory in the ancient world would be that the army would take the city by climbing the wall and scaling the wall in the face of everything the enemy would throw down at them. They continue to scale the wall, and the first one up was the great hero. But instead of scaling the wall to take the city... Paul's fleeing the city. He's going in the opposite direction, being put in a basket and being lowered down. You know, why do you tell that story? Well, it's because of their own culture that viewed the one who took the city by scaling the wall. That was the great hero. And Paul's saying, no, in the gospel, it's just the opposite. We're getting lowered down in, in baskets because people are hating Christ and they're hating God and they're hating us because we represent Christ and we preach his gospel. So, and that's glory. That's, that's nobility. That's, to us, he's the hero even in his weakness because he's emulating Jesus. And he's emulating the reality that in Christ we are hated of all men, which gets into the morning message this morning, if the world should hate you. <laughs> Jesus says, know that it has hated me before you. So, um, the whole, um, what would you say, the whole... Outlook, attitude, um, assumptions, 
perspective is completely different from the Christian worldview because we're, we're reasoning out of the gospel. We're reasoning out of the story of what God has done in Christ in humility and lowliness to save his people, to triumph over sin and of evil in a way that is totally unexpected. It wouldn't be the way you'd think this is to get done. And again, you know, we're tempted as Christians to also go down that same road, to think that uh, it's might that makes right, it's, uh, or if we have a sense of right, everything is on the table, we could use any means that we want to achieve what we think is the victory of the cross. But God's told us the way to achieve the victory, and that's to walk as he walked, that's to be persecuted, and not view that as uh, the greatest affront that ever could be considered. It's amazing that one time martyrs were viewed as the model for what Christians ought to aspire to. Not that we should have a martyr's complex, but they were uh, seen as the great heroes of the faith. And today it's everyone who's looking to avoid persecution at any level whatsoever. If anybody speaks a bad word at us as a Christian, religious persecution, and we cry out that the world's going to end. And, you know, this is, this is all, in my estimation, completely wrong. We, we are called to suffer wrongs and abuse and wickedness on the part of men because the world is the world and it won't ever stop being the world. And the only way we, we triumph over the world is in our meekness and holiness, that we don't fight as the world fights. We fight with the weapons of our warfare not being carnal but mighty through God to the casting down of strongholds so that the only explanation of how Christianity makes its advance in the world is the fact that God's in this thing. That's how the church grows in the midst of Chinese communism. And the church grows in the face of the Russian attack on the Ukraine. And you find the church's people are being baptized and coming to faith in the midst of that chaos that's going on there. That God works in the midst of human weakness. And he works in the midst of uh, um, the things we wouldn't think would be optimum for the progress of the gospel. Because, again, the way in which God works is, is, is not the... The victor, the triumphant uh, person, the skills, the wall with an army of followers to conquer the city. It's getting lowered from the wall as the world pursues us, as we in patience uh, rest our souls in the grace of Christ and look to follow his example, to walk in his steps, that though he was reviled, he did not revile again. Um, but he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. That's to be our perspective, and that's, um, that's Paul's perspective. And it's against these false apostles, what he calls super-apostles. Now, isn't that an interesting title, super-apostle? You know, you think of super-apostle, at least the English rendering, and, and what comes to your mind? Think of super-apostle. Think that's bad or good. If, if you know the context of the, of the Corinthian letter, and someone was just to say, he's a super-apostle, what would you think? Superman. Superman. We think of Superman. We think of superheroes. Super apostle. Imagine if Paul wrote a letter to the church in Pybus and called me a super pastor. Whoa. <laughs> Paul, you don't know me. <laughs> but we would think something positive and wonderful and great. And that's because we don't know Greek. Uh, because the prefix that Paul uses for um, a super apostle is hyper. He's a hyper-apostle. You know, put the prefix super before something, we think of something great and powerful and wonderful, something supreme, supreme. Uh, but uh, hyper 
what do we put that prefix to? Hyper what? Tension? Um, hyper, what's the, the, the hypo version of the hyper? Thyroid. Thyroid. We got hyperthyroid. We have hyperactivity. <laughs> uh, you know, none of this is really good. You know, in medical, we put in these medical terms, something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with you when you're hyper. Uh, and we even use the word hyper itself as its own verb to express something that's not quite normal. That person's hyper. Uh, he's not really in touch with, uh, you know, he's extreme. It's, 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 over, it's overboard. And Paul says that's the kind of apostles these people were. They were just overboard on all the wrong things. They were just hyper. There's something really wrong with those people. And they're not apostles because um, he's going to, we'll, we'll do this really next week. But um, they're coming with another gospel, with another Jesus, and with another spirit. Those are the three things he says these people were coming to the church with. Another gospel, another spirit, and another Jesus. And hence, that made everything off kilter, that made everything wrong, that made everything uh, twisted, distorted, and really unhealthy. (laughs) All these diseases come out of hyper things. Anyway. Uh, Did that answer your question? Kind of, sort of? That was helpful. Okay, good. All right, we have about a half an hour left. Um, Anything else? Mike is here. I could go to his question. Um, I think I have a short one. Sure. Uh, in, in Genesis, when, when uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that when God made these things, you know, he... Uh, he killed these animals before Adam and Eve, and I, I kind of wondered, like, what can we take from the fact that it, not only that he clothed them, uh, but you know, did he take these animals and made sacrifice with them? Yeah, in a sense, and like the first time that you know they see death, really, you know, in, in the shedding of blood or. Can we read into that in any way? Or? Probably not. Because the, the emphasis of the passage is their state of nakedness before God and one another. And the question of shame in that context. And what God does to provide a clothing for their shame, did it involve the death of these animals? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's not the emphasis of the passage. It's certainly not the emphasis that uh, our approach to God is is best made through um, the offering up of animal blood, that that's a necessary thing here at this point in redemptive history. Certainly when we see Cain and Abel bringing their offerings before the Lord, uh, they brought the, he, Cain brought, uh, Abel brought the first fruit of his flock. Why? Because he was a shepherd. It would be appropriate that he is dealing with uh, sheep for his livelihood and he takes something of the things out of the flock that belong to him and instead of saying this is going to be monetized in some way or I'm going to use it for my own self or family or whatever it's offered unto God in in an offering of worship 
and Cain brings the fruit of the ground. And that's a perfectly legitimate offering to bring, because there were grain offerings in the law as well as animal offerings. And uh, the New Testament does not reflect upon this the question of whether animals or whether it was a grain. It was a question of an offering that was brought in faith. That faith is the key issue. It's by faith that Abel brought a more perfect sacrifice, Hebrews says. So again, I would go where Scripture goes in terms of the things that Scripture tends to emphasize and not try to read into it something that we might think is there uh, and it might fit into some of the things we like to emphasize in our theological understanding when it's not the thing that Scripture itself emphasizes. When we come and we look at the Genesis narrative, chapter 2 ends by saying the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the thing that is being emphasized, is their nakedness. And that they sought to clothe themselves by fig leaves to hide themselves because they were ashamed. And, you know, the, the point of their shame is not just the fact that they had no clothes that they wore, but it's that lack of clothing that brought, before sin entered into the world, um, they could be perfectly open, transparent, free, in the presence of God and the presence of one another, with nothing at all uh, on their backs or nothing at all uh, clothing them. It, it, it's that picture of um, openness and transparency. Uh, the picture when sin enters in, they're running from the presence of God. They can't be at home at all in the presence of God. It's not so much the body that is exposed, it's the heart, it's the soul, it's the shame uh, of their nakedness that is not just the shame of physical nakedness, but of the spiritual nakedness before the Lord. Hebrews 4, all things are naked, open and revealed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know, it it has its... implications for things like nakedness you know, we should be wearing clothes also I think in the respect of marriage in terms of the freedom and openness and transparency a husband has with his wife even when uh, you know the belly gets a little bit larger and things that you wouldn't want to parade before the world before your spouse you're, 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 there's no discord there shouldn't be there shouldn't be. There should be openness and freedom. And that physical expression of openness and freedom in the presence of one another should also be uh, with respect to there's nothing here to hide. There's no ulterior stuff. You know, you know me at my worst and you love me anyway. I mean, I think that's sort of the, the sense of all of this. It's not so, you know, I wouldn't be so much thinking, here's, here God has given us the technical way in which we um, find the forgiveness of our sins so much as um, and here is the way relationships get twisted and distorted and perverted because sin enters. It's not so much the remedy of sin, it's the state of sin that I think is the emphasis, at least as I read the book of Genesis. You know, if you want to read it in the other way and take in that other part, which is biblical truth, you know, there has to be the shedding of blood, the innocent blood um, that ultimately pictures Jesus. So uh, you want to read it in at that point in redemptive history? I mean, I'm not going to stop you from doing it or say you're a heretic to do so. I would just say that I don't think that's the emphasis that Scripture itself is making. But I know we like to read our theology into the whole of every text. So. <laughs> but we to take the Scripture in its own terms, and I think we're a little bit safer, at least in, in most cases. There's nothing wrong in doing what you're advocating or saying is possible to do. It's possible to see that. No question. Just I'm not certain that's the emphasis that um, is being made here.
So right idea, maybe wrong text, I'd say. <laughs> the idea is correct, but the text might not support that. But I could be wrong. <laughs> I'll offer that as well. Anything else? Now, um, Mike raised a, a question that uh, I was, uh, you know, I'd be content to table this, I really will. <laughs> but uh, especially. I really have my own answer on that, but I just wanted to hear your take. Oh, why don't you share your answer first? <laughs> okay. Oh, about blood? No, I don't think that has anything to do with what's going on here. I know, I know. I'm not saying that was like the only questions I've ever had over here. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's go to the passage. Now, one of the reasons I was a little little, little bit hesitant would like to, uh, in some of the reading I, I did on, on this, uh, it was recommended that I read a book. Actually, I have it, and I just didn't get an opportunity to read it. It was actually written by a Jewish theologian by the name of Nachum Sarna who taught at Brandeis University back in the 60s and 70s, and he wrote a commentary on uh, the book of Exodus and some of the, um, the authors, the Protestant guys that I was reading, saying, well, Mark Nachum Sarna gives a lot of insight and understanding into what's going on here, but I never got a chance actually to read him. But anyway, let's go back to um, the passage in um, uh, Exodus chapter, is it 5? No, chapter 4. Chapter 4. Oh, it has to do with the whole matter of the uh, Lord coming to kill Moses because his sons were uncircumcised and then what Zipporah did. Right? Right. Okay. Let's read it. Let's, let's read the whole section. Because I have 20 minutes to kill. Uh, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to And of course, God's called him to go. But he's looking even to get the consent of his father-in-law. He's, he's tending his father-in-law's uh, sheep. And he's married to his father-in-law's daughter. And he has children with his father-in-law. So he just can't leave his family, go and do this thing that God's called him to do. It has to be consistent with family harmony and family responsibilities. So he goes back to the head of the family, which was Jethro. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. You didn't tell them that God sent me to go down and to tell Pharaoh to let, his, let my people go. And Jethro said to him, go in peace. And Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So you have people seeking Moses' life. So keep that idea in your mind. There are people, men, seeking the life of Moses. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and of course he, they were seeking his life because he had killed the servant of Pharaoh, um, who was persecuting uh, one of the people of Israel. And so Moses took his wife, his sons with them on a donkey, and went back into the land of Egypt. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So keep in your mind the hardening of the heart. Uh, so you keep in mind people seeking his life, hardening of the heart. And then you shall take, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
That's the third thing you need to keep in mind, the idea of a firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Of course, as you know the story, that's the tenth plague, the taking of the life of the firstborn, because Pharaoh would not release Yahweh's firstborn, the people of Israel. And so now Moses is heading back, having God's word, and then in a lodging place on the way, Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. Kind of a, where did this come from? It didn't seem like there was anything prior to this that would indicate this is something that God would do. Um, but again, it may be something that he did in the light of the previous revelation that was given to Moses. There must have been something in Moses' mind saying, well, this whole idea of the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn who is Israel, the fact that my children are firstborn, and uh, there was some concept or recognition that God revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God had given a covenant with Abraham in which circumcision was the sign of the covenant, chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, that uh, Moses should have understood his sons, as first, his firstborn and his secondborn, both, um, um, I'm trying to think of their names, Gershom and, uh, I don't remember them. Back in chapter 2, I think we're given their names. Um, that they should have been circumcised, but evidently they were not. And so uh, that's the reason that Moses himself, as one who was sent to Egypt with the purpose of bringing the people out of bondage, he himself has to be in a proper relationship with God if he's going to represent God faithfully before God's people. A second thing is that Moses can't just breathe a sigh of relief and say, look, those that were seeking my life are now dead, uh, so that's fine, nothing is going to harm me. Um, well, Pharaoh is going to probably try to harm him, but more than even those who are seeking to take his life, more than Pharaoh's ability to take Moses' life, Moses needs to understand it's God, first and foremost, who is the giver of life and death. That it's God who is the one I stand before, And when God is looking to take my life, then I need to take his fear as my principal fear. Come to grips with his um, eye and his presence more than anything else. And in the light of God's presence to make sure that my life, my ways, my leadership is exemplary and is keeping covenant with God. It's keeping the covenant relationship that God had made with um, Abraham and his descendants. And if Moses is going to fulfill this Exodus redemption uh, that's given, that's being brought about, because God remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this matter of circumcision cannot be avoided and cannot be delayed. Uh, You go into the 11th, the 12th and 13th chapters of Exodus. Um, well, chapter 13, the Lord said to me, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among my people of Israel, both man and beast, uh, is mine. And so there's the uh, reality of the firstborn, even of the family, even of the flock, that is consecrated unto God. And um, 
then the Lord said, Remember this day that you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, by strong hand that the Lord brought you out from this place. And the final act of that was the taking of the firstborn of Egypt. So again, emphasizing the importance of the firstborn. And then when that firstborn plague is brought upon uh, the people, uh, it was in terms of the households of the Israelites where the Passover was to be eaten, was to be t- eaten, and it was the matter of the blood of the um, lamb that was to be taken and put on the lentils, the lintel and the, the doorposts of the homes that the angel of death will pass forth, uh, pass over. So you have ideas of firstborn, you have ideas of blood sacrifice, you have all these ideas that are brought to bear also upon this redemption that God's going to do in Egypt. So all this is pertinent to what um, Moses is called to do as a leader of the people. The thing that does surprise me is that during the time of the wilderness wanderings, there doesn't seem to be that they were circumcising their children. It wasn't until Joshua that the uh, circumcise their children before they enter into the land. But um, at least here, God's making it clear. He's the Lord of life and death. And uh, Moses, as the covenant servant, who's to go down and lead the people out of Egypt, Egypt, he himself, with regard to his own family, needs to be um, conforming to the demands of God's relationship with his people, which is known through the Abrahamic covenant, should be known. And so that was Moses' offense. And somehow God, Moses understood that. And somehow Zipporah understood that. Maybe Moses and Zipporah were talking about, well, we have a firstborn and secondborn son, Israel that I'm going to redeem. That's the firstborn of the Lord. Um, we are in covenant with God in this relationship. Circumcision is a part of that. And Moses believes, I need to circumcise my, my sons. But Zipporah is unwilling. <laughs> because she is not only determined when God, the Lord is going to kill Moses um, to take out herself the knife and cut off the skins of her, of force, uh, of her son's foreskin. Uh, but she takes the foreskins and she touches Moses' feet with it and says, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. I don't think that was said in a pass, in a, in, in, a, in a peaceable way. I think she was angry, she was frustrated. Uh, she's perhaps given in to what Moses thought was a demand that God had laid upon him, but she was resistant, likely. Again, reading into it. Again, we're not told everything about this. This is just a lot of guesswork. But you see all these ideas, they seem to coalesce into this thing. And... Um, it does seem to be that uh, um, Zipporah's reaction to the whole thing is that she did it, but she was unwilling to do it. So maybe there was some family discord. Moses, as a leader, is going to experience some family discord in leading the nation of Israel. He has to learn to overcome the opposition of a wife or the opposition of the people to do the will of God. And so I think all these ideas perhaps coalesce in this incident. Does that make some measure of sense to what we have here? Yeah. You're all smiling at me, you're <laughs> frowning at me, you're looking at me. But, um, Mike, you, any questions? Well, well, the first point you made was the point I also believed. I didn't ponder, you know, Zipporah's um, moods and actions on it, so I'm glad for your uh, input on that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it all has to do with Moses' preparation for leadership as well. I think that would be an important thing. 
Moses up to this point seems to be doing everything right except for protesting that he's, you know, bad speaker and got us to get somebody else. But um, with regard to most of these other things, I mean, just the fact that he went back to his father-in-law, good, good thing. Good thing to do, recognize the importance of his family, not leaving his family back in Egypt, bringing his wife and his sons with him. But then that should have placed upon his soul this reality that these are uncircumcised children. And God's covenant people are circumcised people. Of course, it raises the question of Moses' own circumcision. I mean, I don't know. Again, a lot of these things we just don't know about. We can speculate. But if Moses is going to be a leader of the people, he has to, first of all, fear God. And again, remember, those that that sought your life um, are dead. That's The people that sought his life was what made him flee in the first place. Remember? He killed the Egyptian and people knew about it. So he fled. He fled in the face of that danger. Uh, He can't lead the people if he's going to be afraid if everybody's seeking for his life. (laughs) So God comes and seeks for his life. (laughs) Because he hadn't kept the covenant with Abraham with regard to his children. They're traveling with him down to Egypt. He's, He's going to be God's man, God's leader to lead the people. And so God still instills within his heart a greater fear than the fear of any man. Um, Again, Hebrews 11, By faith he didn't fear the wrath of the king, seeing him who is invisible. He saw something greater than the wrath of the king. He saw him who is invisible. And so there's something, I think, of the fear of the Lord. I mean... Yeah, these people could take my life, but I don't want to be in bad terms with this God who's now come. And in this way, I don't know what form it took or how this threat was apparent, but God came and sought his life. I need to fear that God above all that I fear. And I need to be obedient to him in my family. And even if my wife is opposed to the idea of circumcising his kids, they have to be circumcised. And God probably put a little bit of fear into Zipporah as well. And she realized what the issue was. These kids weren't circumcised. So she takes out the knife. She does the work. <laughs> Not in a happy way. <laughs> takes the foreskins, touches Moses' feet with it. You're a bridegroom of blood. <laughs> because of the circumcision is what she says. It is an interesting passage, but uh, hopefully that helps to illuminate parts of it. Well, the whole of it, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's much more to it. And when I go in and read Malcolm Sarna, if I come up with any more insight, I'll let you know if he provides any. Comments, questions before we conclude? We've got about uh, nine minutes to go. Does that raise any thoughts in your mind other than yick when you think of the circumcision of these kids and the throwing of the foreskins at his feet? You know, a lot of things in the Bible are, are really interesting. Um, you know, part of a culture we, we know little about and uh, you know, part of things that you know, think they were to happen today if they were to be reenacted before our eyes today it would not be something we could um, readily enjoy uh, seeing these things occur the way they're described in the text of scripture <laughs> I thought we had a question. She was scratching her arm. Okay. <laughs> but I, I was just going to say when you said that last part, do you think the fact that it was on his feet had any significance? Like, did it have to do with him going or going? I don't know. 
It might, but I, I can't think of one offhand. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, like you said, maybe in their culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, just so much of it is cultural, and you really have to know the culture in order to really understand what's going on. I mean, like with, like with Paul being lowered from the wall. You know, I forgot who I read about this, the way in which the Roman armies would come and scale walls. You know, they'd be going up these rickety little ladders that they would put up on the wall, and you'd have the people on the wall uh, shooting arrows down at them, or throwing molten oil or something down on them. Uh, and uh, again, the first one up, first one to scale the wall, uh, was the hero, and everyone would follow him, and um, the city would be taken. And Paul's exit from um, Damascus is the opposite way. He's going the wrong way. He's going the opposite way that the heroes went, and he's being led, lowered down in a basket. Kind of, uh, whoa, what a coward he was. But, uh, you know, actually, when you think of it as a sanctified retreat away from danger, it's proper. Because, again, persecution is something God's people experience, but it's not, never anything they should court. It's never anything that they should, uh, you know, seek after. Or seek, you know, there there are times when Paul just simply left hostile situations, and uh, that's a perfectly proper thing to do. Well, I hope this has all been helpful. We'll give you another five minutes for fellowship with one another, if there are no other questions. So let's uh, go before the Lord, giving Him thanks for this time together. Father, we're thankful for your word that is truth and it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. In the entrance of your words, they do give light, they give understanding to the simple. We ask you to bless the truths we've looked at this morning and things that are not true, things that are just matters of my own opinion or things that perhaps have gone astray from uh, the intention that you've given and the giving of your word, that Lord, those would not be things that would be determinative of any part of our outlook or any part of our lasting um, uh, things of great concern to us. And so we ask now that you would bless us as we greet one another, as we fellowship with one another, as we enter into the morning hour of worship, as we come and we ask for these mercies, in the name of Christ our Lord, amen.